Hello, and Mike Baxter here uh, with another Strategy Distilled for September. So this month I'm going to be talking about the role of values in strategy and the rise of people's strategies. So as many of you will know, I've always had a strand of research that I'm working on to help build new models and processes and to keep my consultancy fresh. And back in 2019, my research focused on analysing and benchmarking the published strategies of UK universities, because every university has a published strategy, something most other sectors don't have. And I published an 80-page report on those findings at the time. It's available on Amazon if anyone wants to read it. And recently I decided to repeat this university strategy analysis, looking at strategies with a longish time span, those with an end date of 2030 or beyond. And currently I'm exploring how they present their strategic values. And in this edition of Strategy Distilled, I want to give you a preview of the thinking behind this work and offer some suggestions on how you should think about strategic values in your own organisation so that they're more impactful in shaping organisational culture. Now, I wrote in November's edition uh, of Strategy Distilled last year a piece on connecting values with strategy, and that contained this sort of data. 82% of all companies have official statements on their corporate culture, and 72% of these referred to their company's culture as values or core values. So clearly, values are an important way to describe the nature of corporate culture. And 75% of all CEOs interviewed in Harvard Business Review discussed their company's culture or core values, even when not specifically asked about it. So the takeaway seems simple. Publishing and talking about your strategic values is important, and it's seen to be strongly connected with organisational culture. Zoom out from the specifics, and we can perhaps tie this in to a much broader trend that certainly seems to be happening here in the UK. Interest in people strategies is on the rise over the past three years. Google Trends data shows that the term people strategy was searched for 63% more in this year compared to 2019. That's UK data. Now, clearly, some of this will be driven by the practicalities of managing pandemic-triggered working from home. But there also seem to be deeper undercurrents at play. Organisational change is allegedly increasing in both volume and pace. As it does, leadership styles need to focus less on command and control and more on direction setting and facilitation. And if frontline teams are going to be less micromanaged by the executive, they need to have strong values and tangible cultural norms to guide their decision-making. Which brings me to the crux of my proposition to you. The people part of your strategy needs to assume much higher significance than it has in the past. This is to equip you better for the changes your organisation is going to need to make without having the time it would like to prepare for them. You need to build a strong organisational culture, enabling frontline teams to feel guided and empowered to make decisions without having to refer everything upstairs for approval. Organisational culture, in turn, needs to be underpinned by strong organisational values. But this underpinning will only work if the values are clear enough 
to relate to employees' lived experience in the workplace and strong enough to facilitate their decision-making in unforeseen circumstances. How, then, do we present organisational values effectively? The first and often overlooked requirement is to be clear about what these values actually are and what they're for. In a recent interview with McKinsey, Melissa Daimler, Chief Learning Officer of Udemy and author of Reculturing, Design Your Company Culture to Connect with Strategy and Purpose for Lasting Success, she argued that achieving culture fit doesn't mean trying to get everyone to fit into the culture you already have. Instead, it's much better to bring a different set of perspectives that still complement who you are and what you're doing as a company. You can't grow and be innovative, she suggests, if you don't have additional perspectives on your team. Rob Estratino's perspective is don't hire for culture fit, hire for culture add. So not everyone in the organisation needs to hold your organisational values personally. They're organisational values, not a prescription for the individual values of every employee. It would be an odd organisation indeed that said it cherished and sought diversity across its workforce in every regard except the personal values they hold. Values, however, do need to be acted upon and need to be seen to be acted upon across the organisation. Many organisations have a published set of values that don't ever appear to be talked about. They're not referred to in meetings. They don't seem to have had any influence on the key decisions made by senior leaders. It may not even be clear how values are meant to inform decisions and guide actions. Which brings us to the second requirement for presenting organisational values effectively. Be explicit about how your values are meant to be translated into action. In that November Strategy Distilled piece that I mentioned earlier, I gave three examples of companies explaining how employees ought to be innovative. NVIDIA said, We know our path to discovery will be paved with mistakes. We anticipate and avoid the ones we can. We accept, learn from and share the ones that occur. Biogen says, We encourage candor to test assumptions and uncover the best ideas. And Amazon says, leaders expect and require innovation and invention from their teams and always find ways to simplify. I recently found what I think might be an even better example from John Azule, founder of tech recruiting platform Talent.io. His company had a value called Think Team and this is part of how he described how to turn it into action. Number one, conflict happens stay aware of that. Number two, it's not okay to be aggressive towards others, but it's okay to really defend your opinion if you feel strongly about it. Be hard on the problems, but soft on the people. Number three, if conflict arises, address it immediately and face to face. Number four, if you can't resolve it, it's okay to involve a mediator, another team member trusted by both parties. Now, a couple of interesting case studies here come from Minecraft and Burbeck University of London. As covered in this past July's strategy distilled, Minecraft, one of the biggest sell selling games of all time, recently decided to exclude all non-fungible tokens, NFTs, from its platform 
because they don't align with Minecraft values. A pretty strong examples of values being used to guide strategic action. Burbeck, University of London, recently hit the headlines with a dramatic example of values-driven decisions. They banned all fossil fuel companies from recruiting students through their university career service on the basis that they didn't want to hold relationships of any kind with the oil, gas or mining companies they considered, in quotes, most responsible for destroying the planet. Whilst undoubtedly a bold move taken, they explain in response to campaigns by the students, there's an interesting twist to this tale in the present context. Neither Burbeck's strategy nor their statement of organisational values on the website suggest they have the slightest interest in environmental issues at all, far less any inclination towards radical sector-leading activism on environmental campaigns. The lesson for us all? Try to keep our values and our actions aligned, or at least in approximate harmony. Finally, the third requirement for presenting organisational values effectively. If values are really going to serve as useful decision tools, guidance will be needed on how the different values take precedence or are reconciled if they come into conflict. Imagine facing a decision between two options. Option one will make more money, but it'll increase our carbon footprint. Option two will make a bit less money, but it'll reduce our carbon footprint. Our values say we need to be both commercial and sustainable. And at face value, they don't seem to help me make this decision. If, however, the sustainability value went on to explain that our long-term goal was to be carbon neutral by 2030, and in the meantime, any new initiative that increased our carbon footprint would only go ahead if it had been signed off by the senior leadership team. I then have a basis for my decision-making. I've got the authority myself to approve option two. But if I'm convinced option one is better for the organisation, I better start preparing the case to go to the leadership team. Four things I hope you might take away from this. Number one, look at the values in your strategy in a new light. They may increasingly underpin your organisational culture and drive the people aspect of your strategy. Number two, start making moves to clarify what your values are for and how they should be used across the organisation, especially how they influence the behaviour and decisions of senior leadership. Number three, for each of your organisational values, be explicit about how that value ought to be translated into action. What, if we are to comply with this value, should we strive to do that we might otherwise have overlooked? And what should we strive to avoid that we might otherwise have done? Number four, guide and advise on how different values take precedence or are reconciled should they come into conflict. And now a couple of snippets you might have missed about strategy. The first one, if you want to change culture, change the language you use. Related to what we've just been saying about values comes more wise words from a favourite of strategy distilled, Tim Casasola. Tim suggests that old habits are often sustained by familiar use of language, and introducing new habits into an organisation can often be facilitated by the language used. He gives the example from his organisation of an air traffic controller, whose role is to help a project run as smoothly as possible. 
The air traffic controller is aware of everything, deadlines, stakeholders, internal meeting times, client meeting times, team, team dynamics, client dynamics, etc. This, he argues, is different from a project manager who is often a dedicated professional who does, does nothing else but project manage. Tim's air traffic controllers are different. They are strategists, designers and developers who take on an ATC role for one project whilst contributing to other projects in their own dis discipline. Perhaps more importantly though, the introduction of a new form of words to describe a new role signals new ways of working for every team working on every project. And the next snippet, strategic autonomy is enabled by clear intent and technical excellence. I think this is a great guiding principle from Jason Yip. And he explains it with a quote from David Marquette's remarkable book, Turn the Ship Around. Control, we discovered, only works with a competent workforce that understands the organization's purpose. Hence, as control is divested, both technical competence and organizational clarity need to be strengthened. The strategy lesson for me here is that the more you want your strategy to be adopted widely across the organization, the more clarity there needs to be about its strategic intent. So that's it, Strategy Distilled for September. See you next month.